Hey podcast listeners, welcome to episode 11 of Misfits. This is where I speak to the rebels, the troublemakers and the unconventionals in Singapore. Try to see things as how they see it and to learn from them. Some of these individuals include Danny Wong, who started a million-dollar cupcake empire, Betty Lee, who at the age of 60 went backpacking around the world for 400 days, and a whole lot more. And today on the show, we have Lo Lik Ping, the owner and director of Unlisted Collection. His career began as a litigator during the Asian financial crisis, mainly dealing with company bankruptcy. His transition to hospitality occurred in 2000 when he bought a property now known as Hotel 1929 on a bargain, treating it as a passion project. Today, he owns several boutique hotels, restaurants in Singapore, London, Shanghai and Sydney. Some of these include New Majestic Hotel, Wanderlust Hotel, Burn Inn, Esquina, Poland and so much more. He also chairs at the Shatek Institute and the Singapore Hotel Association. He holds directorship at the National Volunteer and Philanthropy Centre, in short, NBPC, Asian Civilization Museum and the Pranaka Museum. In this conversation, we spoke about the economics of the hospitality business, why he only opened restaurants with a co-chef owner, hiring practices in the competitive hospitality industry, old bubbles chairs, and a whole lot more. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Uh, when someone asks you, what do you do? How do you answer that these days? Uh, so it's a strange one. I still have a hard time uh, uh, really giving a description. I used to have a really hard time saying I was a, a hotelier because I always felt like a little bit of a fraud. But nowadays I say hotelier. Yeah. With conviction. With a bit more conviction. I used to think it, it was a little bit fraudulent to call myself hotelier because I didn't really learn how to be a hotelier. And neither did I really run the hotel. So, you know, I, I couldn't really tell you how a hotel was run. I, I set up a, a, some hotels, um, but really more from the perspective of the development. Um, but yeah, nowadays I, I, I say hotelier with a bit more conviction. <laughs> and uh, well, like, how, do you, how would you define the term hotelier then? I guess someone who, who kind of... Um, or if there's a better term to describe yourself. Um... Yeah, I guess for me, I struggle with it, you know, because I don't really operate the hotels. I operate the hotels from a, a sense of, of the ownership, maybe, but not necessarily from the day-to-day -day running of it. Um, but I guess that is part of being a hotelier. <laughs> uh, and I also, I guess, um, do all the conception stuff at the, at the beginning, you know. Uh, but I don't really run the hotels. After they open, really, I get the GMs to run them. And perhaps I look at the numbers once a month uh, or a couple of times a, a month, maybe. So from that perspective, yeah, I always, I still struggle a little bit about defining my role. <laughs> All right. So let's go back to where you start, where you first start growing up, you know, in uh, Dublin, Ireland, right? Mm -hmm. um, with your doctor parents, how was it like growing up? You know, were you living in the city, uh, city center or town? And how do you, how do your parents even end up being there? My parents were studying and working in um, in um, Ireland at the time. Uh, my dad was there for his school, uh, boarding school, and then after that he was there for university. So he spent a substantial amount of time there. My parents met there; they got married. Uh, I was born there. Um, they came back soon after to Singapore, though. So I would have spent the early part of my childhood in Singapore before they sent me back to boarding school. Now. So I guess my, the early part of my childhood was very, very much a Singaporean experience. And how, how old were you there then in, from boarding school till? I was uh, there from age 12 to 18. Oh, wow. Yeah, so pretty much straight after PSLE. How do you enjoy your boarding school experience? I actually loved it. I, it was one of the, uh, looking back, one of the best uh, periods of my life. It was one of those times when you know, I mean, in, in retrospect, yeah, it was a val valuable experience for me. When I first went, I, I didn't like it very much. I obviously was very homesick, and it was a strange environment. I felt a little bit sort of, I guess, you know, coming from Singapore, a tropical country, you end up in somewhere like Ireland, it rains all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it was somewhat of a, a, a strange experience for me at the start, but I made a lot of friends there. And, and uh, yeah, looking back, it was one of the best periods of my life. And you just sort of went alone, right? Because yeah. 
Yeah. Well, wow. my sister was also sent, Ooh. but she was in a different school from me. Okay. Yeah. So we ha and you know boarding school in those days you didn't really get to go out, so I didn't hardly saw her maybe um, once every two months or so, uh, and you know this is way before you know advent of handphones, so you couldn't even call home. You know you had no to wait way. by a payphone. I remember at a specific time and the parents would call in. Yeah, it was just different. So you maybe you'd speak to the parents once a month. You know, oh, wow. and we'd fly back maybe at. Christmas, Easter, that was about it. Summer holidays. Chinese New Year? Oh, no, no. school started. No, no, Chinese New Year, we were always in school. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I, for a long period of time, I, I didn't really have uh, any Chinese New Year's at all. So to be honest, even to this day, I, I don't really put too much store by Chinese New Year because it was never that big a part of my kind of childhood. So I, I, don't, really, uh, I don't really get Chinese New Year too much. It doesn't bother me if I miss it. <laughs> And how will you describe yourself then, you know, when you are a young boy, looking back? I would describe myself as a very yeah. naughty kid. Uh, Is it? Part of the reason why my parents decided to send me to boarding school, I suspect. Um, yeah, I, I, was, I was naughty, you know. I guess I got uh, pulled up a lot in school. Um, I remember getting caned quite a few times. <laughs> by, by the school or by parents? Oh yeah, by the principals okay. yeah, in the school. Back then, in Singapore, was and, and even in, in Dublin, yeah. Corporal punishment was, was a thing in those days. <laughs> yeah. So if I had to describe myself, yeah, in my childhood, I would, uh, naughty would be the one word that immediately came to mind. And was that the reason why then parents sent you to boarding school? Or would, do they actually already wanted you? I think um, certainly the fact that I was naughty and not doing as well in the in school system in Singapore was a factor. My Mandarin was very, very poor. Um, needless to say, in those days, that was a, a big minus factor, you know. Um, so I think, I think that drove the decision as much as anything else. And, and there was obviously some sentiment to it because my father came from the same school. So I guess there was that element of that. But I think the, uh, a large part of it was the fact that <laughs> yeah, I was a pretty naughty kid, I think. And your sister was also sent together with you for the same reasons. Yeah, he, not really for the same reasons. I think oh, because she wanted you were to going. Go. Oh, she wanted. She to. wanted to go, so she got sent to a, a girls' uh, boarding school in Dublin. Okay. Yeah. Together, same Together time. Together at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Um, were you then? I mean, there was an argument that you spoke with uh, wife Min, right, mm. about sending the yes. cards. <laughs> <laughs> She's not gonna. Ha I'm not gonna win that argument. <laughs> but yeah, we we've had a. Debates about it, yeah. Not well, not really serious arguments. Obviously, my kid's only five years old. Yeah. yeah. But how did, like, why, why did you want then to... Because your kids haven't went to school yet, so we don't no. know if maybe no. he's naughty or he's I not. Think, I think for me, very much, it, it is a, a sentiment thing now, more than anything else, because he'll be the third generation to go to that school. Right. Um, and I enjoyed myself so much there, you know, that I thought he would too. Um, it's, it's no more than that, I know. I've, I, I, I'm sure the education here would be equally fulfilling for him. And so if I did send him, it would be, it'd be more to fulfill that you know, <laughs> sent, sentiment for, my, for me more than anything else. <laughs> and you took law. Um, was that your choice or your parents or both? Um, Looking back. Yeah, you know what? It was a default choice. It was my choice, but it was, it was more of a default thing because, you know, in those days, uh, I come from, you know, a family where, you know, both parents are doctors. Growing up, there was always an assumption I, sh I should be a doctor. I knew I, did, I didn't want to be a doctor. Default choice was to be a lawyer, I guess, so I, I studied law. My parents weren't going to let me do something like history or geography for sure. So, you know, um, yeah, I studied law for that reason, but... I never had a great um, passion for it, really. It was more of a default. And what, did you specialize in uh, any part of the law, in the whole spectrum of the law, when um, you were there? I was a litigator, and mostly doing commercial work. Um, so it wasn't necessarily that I wanted to specialize in it. That was just the, the kind of thing that was going at the time. You know, I entered practice in the late 90s. Um, the bulk of the work we were doing as litigators then was bankruptcy, you know, and litigation to do with bankruptcy and winding ups and stuff like that. It was the tail end of the last Asian crisis. 
So that was just the nature of the work that was uh, called for at that time. Are there any uh, lessons or knowledge you took from law uh, that you bring to Unlisted or in life in general? Yeah, I think so, for sure. You know, those type of skills never, um, they're never in, 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 you know, you hope they're not in high demand, certainly, but they're never um, absent from your day-to-day -day work and your day-to-day -day life, in fact. So every day, you know, as a business, we deal with complex commercial uh, things and, and involved in that, there are definitely legal uh, things that you have to think about. So that, that stands, stands me in good stead, I would say. Yeah. No, but, I asked that question mm. because um, Charlie Munger, mm. who is um, Bill Gates' other half, mm -hmm. was also law background mm -hmm. and he said that um, he doesn't want to be in law and tell people not to be in law. Mm -hmm. um, but having the foundation of law does help him make very clear decisions. Yeah. Would that be something? Yeah, law, I would say, is a good discipline in so far as it makes you think about the, the pitfalls of anything you, you get into because that's the raison d'etre of a lawyer, right? He's there to get you out of a pickle and he's there to structure agreements so that you have the best protection should something go wrong. Um, so that part of your training never quite goes away. You can't let it dominate your um, kind of commercial business life because lawyers are by nature and by training uh, very risk adverse. You know, that's what they do. And, you know, the things we do, you can't be too risk at first. So there's always a balance that you need to draw. How do you do, how do, you do that? I try not to think too much about the law uh, and all the things that can go wrong because if you did, you'd just be consumed by it and you wouldn't, you'd end up doing nothing. Um, as a director of Unlisted, um, what do you spend most of your time and energy on these days? I would say... At the moment, um, nothing, you know, when we have projects ongoing, we are really consumed by that, that project for the pit duration of the project. So we just opened a hotel called the New Claire, the Old Claire. The Old Claire. Claire. <laughs> the Old Claire Hotel in Sydney, this new majestic, <laughs> Freudian slip. The Old Claire Hotel in Sydney, and that probably consumed my life for the, for the two years that it was going on for. Right? Because that's the only thing you think about, you're thinking of the project, you know, almost 24-7. Yeah, flying to Sydney all the time, things like that, you know. So at the moment, I don't have any, any projects ongoing anywhere near that level of intensity. So I'm feeling pretty relaxed, in fact. And maybe which is why we managed mm. to get to see here today. <laughs> and what were your initial goals for 1929 um, when you actually got it? Well, and is, yeah. if there's any also bottom line. Well, to be completely frank with you, at that time, I didn't have any goals. I had no idea what was going to result from that. And I just wanted to open that little hotel and go back to practice, actually. I, I took a year sabbatical from law, thinking I would go back to practice. Um, open 1929, go back to practice. Um, I never did, obviously, you know, uh, because 1929 was a lot more successful than I thought it would be. But at that time, I was just opening this small hotel in Chinatown without any idea what I was doing. I didn't have, you know, any idea where you would go. All I knew was that it'd be, a, it'd be quite a lot of fun while it lasted, uh, and it was, um, but I had no idea whether it would succeed. And frankly, I was quite surprised when it did succeed. What, what was the story there with 1929? Because we know that um, you found that uh, property on a, on a cheap end of the deal. Mm. You got it, mm. but from there, as a lawyer, mm. To become a hotelier mm. is a big difference. Do you have any help? Was there, you know, what were your first to go? And I, you know, I, I you never know thought about it that way. You know, honestly, I never thought about it that way at the time. It was I took a year off from legal practice. I thought I was going to go back to legal practice. I opened the hotel thinking that it would just be a sideline thing. It would be fun, and, and that would be the end of it. So, do you took a year off first, and then the hotel came about, or you knew the hotel? No, no, we. Had, but I purchased the hotel and I knew I had to take a year off, otherwise it would never get built. <laughs> um, and so that was supposed to be my year off doing that hotel. But it dragged on and on and, on and I never went back to practice. After a while, it just became you know, impossible for me to go back to practice. I opened this hotel, New Majestic, and then it kind of snowballed from there. And, and, and before I knew it, I more or less became a hotelier. People said I was a hotelier. Before that, I identified myself maybe more as a lawyer, you know. I'd still introduce myself as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. In fact, I kept my license for quite a number of years after I effectively quit law because 
somehow I thought I might go back to practice. Mm. I never did, but you know. Did you work with then a uh, specific architect for 1929? Because you have visions when you walk into an old building. Mm. Um, and so with that, you must have a specific architect or, you know. No, you know, when I first look at a building, it's usually a very clean slate. I wouldn't have thought of which architect to work with. I wouldn't even necessarily have thought of um, what to do with it. So a lot of the projects, when you first look at it, you, you are drawing a, a picture in your mind. The end result may be completely different from that picture, but often you, you don't really know where you're going to go with it. You don't know what restaurants you're going to put there, what design, things like that. So in none of the hotels have I ever kind of come with it with a very strong view and had already had an architect in mind, things like that. It, it always really depended on the, on the project that, that turned up, you know, and, and what might then kind of come of it, you know, whether it was, um, you know, a hotel or service department or restaurant. Yeah, but at the time when you first look at a, a project, you don't always have a very strong idea of what's going to come of it, even if you fall in love with the building. Yeah, but then what would be the core team that you first form when uh, building a new establishment, a hotel specifically? I would say the first person you do appoint is probably an architect. Not always, um, but often, yeah. I think the key person. But, but sometimes it's, it's not that easy to kind of think of the architectural thing. So maybe you, you, you don't, you know, you just get a, a, a planning specialist to look at it whether or not you can turn it into a hotel or Like a whatever. structural engineer. Yeah, those kind of things, you know, you do your investigations. Um, more to find out from the local councils what, what the planning parameters might be. So you don't always hire an architect that you want to work with first. But, that, but in terms of conceptualizing and designing a hotel, that's usually always the, the first person you go to. And then subsequently, after the architect, what, we, what were people we were looking at? All not the, that I'm going to open yeah. a hotel. Well, no, all the rest <laughs> of the... By now, I guess I have it down, uh, you know, pretty pat. I know who I need to go to. It's usually the structural engineers, mechanical, electrical engineers, <laughs> all those type of the different uh, professions that you need to design the hotel. But in the early days, you know, I, would, I grappled with that a lot. I didn't really know. And you'd kind of get advice from different people, you know, often wrong. Um, but... <laughs> But, but the early first hotel, 1929, even this one, to some extent, it was very much groping in the dark. You were just winging it, more or less. You didn't seek any like, specific help from like, specialists? Really. or Not really, which is, uh, thinking back, pretty brave, actually. A lot yeah. could have gone wrong, but I was very lucky that you know, things didn't, didn't go that wrong. <laughs> but that's pure luck, not, not by design, for sure. Why uh, did you choose to sell back um, what, 1929? On well, leaseback agreement, right? Yeah, I sold and, and leased it back. I guess it was just an opportunity, really, to, to what was realize that. What were you considering? What was the opportunity that you were looking at? I was at? just considering recycling the capital and doing something <laughs> else with it. You know, uh, it, but it was, it was a very tough decision. I, had a, I grappled with it for a long time because 1929 was my first hotel and, and, and for but sentimental was, reasons, the one that... I was most attached to, for that reason. You know. That was not for New Majestic, is it? Huh? No, the capital that you got. No, it wasn't. It did, it, I only sold it a couple of years ago. And New Majestic, we opened in 2006. Yeah. So it was many, many years after that. I think it was just more a question of um, using the capital to do other things. Because Singapore, you can only really kind of do so much in Singapore before you kind of bump up against yourself, more or less, you know, in neighborhoods that you're in. So I, we were looking to do stuff overseas and, and, and uh, you know, liquidating some assets just made sense for, for us in realizing the, the capital gains that we had in order to do other projects. Otherwise, it would have been much riskier and much more difficult. Which was your first uh, overseas establishment? Overseas, the first one was Waterhouse, I think, in why, Shanghai. Why that? Why? What's the story, actually? Uh, actually, Shanghai, Waterhouse was, was just a friend introducing me. You know, he, had, he knew I'd done the two hotels here. Um, then, I think in, in Shanghai, he was looking for retail spaces. This is, uh, doc, uh, this is um, when was this? 27, 07, 08 or something? I think it was mm -hmm. 08. Um, and he was looking to open uh, retail premises. There. He came across this 
site that was not good for retail, but he thought it would be perfect for a boutique hotel. So he called me up. I went up to look with them. And it, I thought it was perfect for a hotel. And that's really how the Waterhouse came about. But at the time, it was, it, it, the area was uh, still pretty rough. It was the old docks of Shanghai. So it was, um, you know, a lot of old buildings. But beautiful old buildings, you know, buildings from the 20s, the 1910s, 1920s. Some simple art deco buildings, not as ornate, certainly as the main bun. Um, because, but that was where the industrial kind of zones were. That was the original docks of Shanghai. So right by the river and beautiful. And, and that's really how Waterhouse came about. So it was, all my overseas ventures have also been largely opportunistic and to some extent accidental. You know, people introduce them to you. I never went out looking for them. Oh, but people introduced them to you and you looked at it and, and I looked at it and said, wow, okay, we could do something with this. And really that's how they came about. Every time you see a property, because I assume that boutique hotel is sort of the run of mill um, revenue churning hotel is what you see um, with the big uh, chains. Do you see it more as a uh, property investment or actually just by operation of hotel? You have to look at it as both really. You can't, it's inescapable that hotels are real estate assets and they are very capital intensive. Um, but at the same time, when you run a hotel, it's very operational. You know, it's day-to-day, -day, it's 24-7. Um, so, so both aspects are very important um, for different reasons. But inevitably, you, you always realize at the end of the day that this is a, this is a, a real estate asset. You know, we can't get away from it. Okay, let's move on to FMB. Mm. <laughs> um, most of the restaurant establishments are open with a chef being the co-owner. Has that always been from the start? And why? Uh, so, yes, it has always been from the start. We've always had equity partnerships with our key chefs. Um, and that started with my very first restaurant. Ember? Ember, that's right, with Sebastian. Sebastian Ng at the time. Um, um, and, and the reason for that is I always recognize that, you know, uh, the really talented chefs, you can't keep them with you if you don't give them some skin in the game. Um, at the end of the day, everyone has to look after their own careers, their own families. They have an obligation to themselves to do the best that they can, you know. And so you must try and align their interests as much with yours as you can. And the way to do that for me is to give them equity in the business. And then you don't have to motivate them. You know, they're self-motivated. They are going out to do the best that they can in the best interest of the business. I, I'm not particularly sort of concerned about, you know, controlling every aspect of the business. In fact, I try not to do anything with the restaurants on a day-to-day -day basis if I can help it, you know. I, I want the chefs to be self-motivated and to do the best they can for the business. And I try not to interfere with that. Where do you get that um, from the idealization of the arrangement? Or has that always, you have been tinkering with that idea and you sort of decided that that is the way to go for it? It wasn't, it wasn't so much tinkering or not tinkering. It was just result of, you know, having uh, conversations with like people like Sebastian when I first met him. You know, and I wanted to give him a good deal. I wanted him to come in um, because it was, his, it was in his in best interest, not because I was setting up a restaurant I needed a chef, you know. When you speak to a lot of chefs, they have a very clear idea in their mind what they want to do with their restaurants and things like that. It's about finding the right fit with the, that person uh, and giving him the tools to do the, the best job he can. What was the story with Sebastian? Um... Someone introduced him to me, and at the time he was cooking for the Marmalade Group. Um, but he wasn't happy, he wanted to leave, so a friend of mine said, Hey, there's this interesting chef, knowing that I was opening this hotel, why don't you speak with him? I spoke with him, um, you know, we talked about and We had very good chemistry, we got on very well, that's how it happened. Um, literally, you know, more or less on a handshake, I guess. Um, so a lot of our restaurant ventures since have really been the result of sort of just having really good chemistry with the chefs, you know, and getting on well with them and being on the same wavelength. Um, and it's worked out quite well for us. What did 
Sebastian, does Sebastian have any traits that stands out? I mean, for you? Traits? Yeah, personality or... I don't know. Was it the resume? It wasn't so much that, you know. Here was uh, this humble person uh, who, who was cooking an amazing, um, um, you know, cooking these amazing meals and humble background. His English wasn't great, you know. It's not the sort of person you would expect it to be kind of cooking this kind of food. It's the same with Justin Quack in a way. You know, producing exquisite food, but, you know, you speak to him, he's, he's quite a humble fellow. They don't necessarily um, um, come from the sort of, you know, milieu where when they were young, they were eating very fine dining food. Uh, the profile of chefs that you find nowadays has changed dramatically. A lot of them do come from those backgrounds, but, you know, the early generation of chefs who were really successful, like Justin Quack and all this, didn't, didn't come from those backgrounds, and yet they were producing this amazing kind of French food and European-style food, you know. And Sebastian was a bit in that mold, I guess. And, yeah. and he was very driven. He was very motivated. He was, he was just great to work with, you know. I never had to chase him one day in my life. He worked harder than anyone I knew up to that point. No way. That was great. And um, continuing, you became a, uh, investing in more restaurants. Mm. Um, moving away from hotel. Is there a reason why? Simple, I guess, for us. It's because, the, for one thing, we first started our restaurants as part of hotels. And they were integral part of the hotels. But the restaurants we were doing at hotels became so successful in their own right that it made sense for us to expand. Um, so that was the first um, impetus. The second was that it's much easier to do a restaurant than a hotel. You know, a, a restaurant you can open in six months. Hotels take years, you know, there's no, there are no shortcuts. If you're developing a hotel from scratch, it's at least two years, you know, and often much longer by the time you get your planning permission and doing the design tender, then you're contracting and all that. It can take two years, three years, four years. So you, you can't do that many hotels at the same time because they're very capital intensive. And they are just very time-consuming. Whereas a restaurant, you can open five restaurants in a year, no problem. And so it just became easier to open restaurants. And for your restaurant, you don't, do you own the property? Not always. Okay, sometimes on a lease. Sometimes, yes. Okay, so Quite then... Quite often on leases, yeah. Yeah, no, because I asked that in the sense that restaurant like hotel too, is not the most lucrative business from a business standpoint. No, it's not. Yeah, uh, so which is my reason to ask that question. Well, it's also, it, well, restaurants are much less capital intensive than a, than a hotel, right? Hotel, you're literally spending tens of millions. Um, a restaurant, you can do it for a tiny fraction of that. So from a risk point of view, it's, it's always uh, easier to do a restaurant than this a hotel. And your leases are much shorter and all those kind of things, right? It's just, it just uh, performs on a different scale from a, a hotel. And hotels can be very profitable if you get the right model, operating side. Um, but of course, the real estate is the largest component of the, of the business. It always is in a hotel. Yeah, and when you look at a restaurant, if it's on a list, do you speculate based on what kind of timeline do you speculate? Is it two years, five years? It depends. You, know, you try and make your money back within two years for sure. Mm. Some restaurants don't. Some restaurants make it back yeah. in six months. Uh, just depends on type of concept. But for a scenario planning point of view, you always look at it within the two, three year horizon. Otherwise, you know, it doesn't make as much sense. Um, looking at personalities and uh, uh, traits, right? When you when the co-owner of a restaurant, um, what are some things that you look for? Knowing what you know now. How do you mean? Uh, is it personalities or traits? You're talking about the chef? The chef. The co-owner of the restaurant oh, is yeah, the chef, okay. correct? Usually okay. it's a chef. It's always the chef. It's yeah. always the chef. I guess for me, it's, 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 uh, it's fairly intangible, you know. It's really about getting on well with the person, having good rapport, good chemistry, and, and a good level of trust. So, it's, it's, not, it's not a specific thing you look for. It's more mm -hmm. an intangible thing, you know. Whether or not you think this person, you can get along with him in the long term because... It's more or less like a marriage, you know. When you, when you do a restaurant at someone, you, it's a long-term thing. 
Yeah, that's why I asked because since if it's a marriage and I'm a wedding planner, mm. <laughs> um, doesn't this handshaking activity requires more than a meal together? Or it does, it does. That's why it takes a while. I mean, um, but for me, I don't have a particular formula that I look for in a person. A lot of it is really down to to a gut feel about that person's character, and and whether or not you have good chemistry with them. And by that, I don't mean, you know, you have a good laugh together, but I mean, do you have a good sense of where his business values lies, whether they align with yours, you know, whether it's the kind of restaurant and, and, and um, concept that you like. Because, you know, I, I get approached all the time with concepts and sometimes they just don't gel with you. Um, so there are some, quite a few factors that you look for before you agree to sign up with someone, I guess. Mm -hmm. But it's not always um, something readily identifiable that you can sketch on a sheet of paper or something. So let's say if uh, someone were to pitch you a restaurant, mm -hmm. what are the few things they would need to bring to you other than an idea in their head? A very, very good sense of the concept. Some outline numbers so that they are aware of what their costs are going to be, uh, what their re projected revenue should be, mm -hmm. where they need to sit on the rent, all these kind of things. Mm -hmm. So, and, and these are things we can help them with. But we, if I'm speaking to someone who's pitching to me about a restaurant, those are the kind of things I want to hear about, that they've thought of it. And not just uh, looking at cooking or opening a restaurant as a, some kind of um, artistic endeavor. You know, Some people think that, and that's usually the wrong person to to work with because you, you have a nightmare trying to get him into line and the business suffers or it doesn't do well. Because yeah. Yeah. I'm saying this also in the future you might be approached again and you're like, okay, just listen to this podcast first <laughs> yeah. and then prepare all the yeah, things yeah, that yeah, I yeah. say yep. and then come to me again. Yeah. We don't ask for huge reams of data but they got to know They've got to know very well the concept that they want. They have to know inside out. They've got to be capable of it, of pulling it off. And they've got to have a rough idea of what numbers they need to hit mm. in order to survive. Because you seem to me like such a calm, relaxed, hangback person. And uh, I, I couldn't ex imagine you just like, I need this, 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 and this. Um, it's also, I feel it's more also like the person who can't pitch to you, they should just be prepared. Yeah, I mean, some of them we don't uh, ask for all these things for because I know them well enough. You know, like David Byrne Enns uh, came from London, where he worked for us in London. It's the same with Clayton Wells at Automata. Clayton worked for us for many years in London. So these guys, do I really sit down with them and make them produce all these things? No, because I know them well enough already. But if it's someone I don't know well, then yes. Obviously, we, we make sure that they are well aware of what their business needs to needs to be at before they can succeed. Um, I have heard from your employees that you remember almost everyone's name. Really? <laughs> uh, they were, they, were, they yeah. were very surprised. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is there any secret technique? <laughs> no, no. I just try and get, get to know everyone. You know, Everyone is... Uh, you respect everyone. You give them that due respect so you have to know who they are. Um, so you, you just have to make the effort. I don't particularly have any technique for it. I just, you know, I just feel it's, it's, it's good. Yeah, yeah. I feel it too. Yeah. Yeah, but they, they, were, they were asking this from them actually. Yeah, they were yeah, like surprised. Yeah. Like, How does he remember my name? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we try, I, I make an effort to, you know, every, valuable, every member of staff is valuable. So you treat them like humans. You got to try and know who they are, not just their names, their backgrounds, you know families, things like that, as much as you can, mm. without being intrusive. <laughs> I want a creepy boss. Yeah. Um, how do you give people autonomy in their jobs while making sure that they are doing a good job? That's a tough one, you know. It took me a long time to, to kind of get that um, right. And I think it's really about just exposing people to different parts of the job and watching how they do it and eventually giving them the, the whole thing to do. Um, because there are not enough hours in the day, so you can't do it all yourself. And, and frankly, if you were standing over someone's shoulder looking at their work all the time, you know, you wouldn't get anyone good working for you. So it's, it's a question of building trust with that person and letting them get on with it. Um, 
So I'm a big believer in that, giving people autonomy in their jobs. You know, someone joins you, let him spend a month looking at his environment, figuring out what, what he needs to do, um, his role in it, give him responsibilities and then, and then load him with more responsibilities and then pretty soon let him, let him run the, the part of his business that he's in charge of. And, you know, you, you try not to micromanage people, let them do it. And usually by that time, they, they know what they need to do. They have their own spin on it, which I always encourage because there's more than one way to skin a cat. Um, and usually the results are good. And with that said, what are some of the more important matrix or indicators that you look at? For someone I'm going to hire? Yeah. I would say... And even those that you have already hired, yep. but like, you know, the first... Okay. First of all, I think... I'm always looking for people, people, you know. Uh, that means that they are generally fairly sociable. Um, because, you know, the business we're in, you, you can't be a shy retiring person um, and not want to mix with people and not want to socialize. I think the people who do best in this sort of business are, are people, people. They like to hang around other people. They, you know, like to energize the room. Um, so as much as possible, we, we try and hire people like that. Um, the other thing I look for is just people who have a, um, a good amount of, of sort of common sense rather than, yeah, you know, because you'd be surprised. And by that, I mean people who can just get on with things without, you know, if you can hire an idiot and direct him what to do every second of day, that would probably work out if you could afford to direct him every second of day, you know. But usually you can't. So you try and hire people with common sense who who you know will get on with, uh, with the job without having to be, you know, micromanaged and directed every, every uh, second of the day. And, and that's something we try and look for as much as possible in the people we hire because it just makes your life a lot easier if you, you can find people who are able to get on with it. You know, I always say to my guys, get on with it. Don't wait for me to give you directions about what to do and how to do it. You know? And with that said, uh, you are also in Singapore. In mm. Singapore, everyone in FMB in hotel is facing a labor problem. Mm. How do you then, you know, get the cream of the crop if they say it? Well, you don't always get cream of the crop, and you don't need to. I think you need to get uh, people who are self-respecting and have pride in their work. You know, we always look for some kind of crazy star performer and someone who's. Got covered all the bases in his career. Not really. I, th I think we, we, we don't always need those. Um, in some parts of the business, maybe you do. But honestly, we just look for people, people who are self-motivated, you know, who, who are yeah, excited to do their jobs. Uh, they don't all need to be superstar, the best people. But you hear that all the time from you know, management gurus, how to hire the best and all that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's not always easy. You, you, and I don't try and hire the best all the time for every single job. I try and, and, and find people at the right stage of their careers who are enthusiastic about doing certain things and certain functions. And in a few years' time, you know, sometimes they leave you and find other jobs to grow in their careers. That's okay. Um, but I don't need to find a fully formed super employee for every position. Yeah. And with that said, do you like engineer their jobs in such a way that, you know, with people now leaving every two years, mm. or maybe even lesser, mm. you know, how do you like, or, you know, if there is anything that you put some thoughts into it? Well, I think you, you have to treat people with respect, as I said, you know, um, and if you do that and if you give them a fulfilling job and you pay them uh, well, I think most people will stay with you for at least a decent amount of time until it's time for them to move on for career reasons. And um, I think we do our fair share in, in that regard and, and we get our fair share of employees who are, who are loyal and stay on longer than, than uh, you know, market expectations, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I was just at a wedding last weekend at uh -huh. uh, Poland. Uh, in Poland? Yeah, yeah. Okay, you I'm just a wedding, from... Yeah, I'm wedding... No, no, not my wedding. Yeah, I'm a wedding planner by yeah, day. Yeah. But you said in Poland. 
It, yeah, it, Poland. Okay. No, po the what flower dome? Oh, Pollen. I thought you, Pollen, you meant sorry. Poland as in the country. No, Pollen. Oh, you just in <laughs> okay. Sorry. Yeah. No, I think I think your uh, maybe your parents came by. That's right. They did. Yeah. Yes, I know there was a wedding on at the weekend. <laughs> yes, because the GM was yeah. there as well on Saturday, right? Yes. 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 Stepan was there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was the wedding you were organizing. Yeah. Really? I saw the pictures online. Oh, oh, oh that was oh, fast. Yeah. Well, I knew it was on, so I. I, I checked the Instagram account. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, how about let's look at failures. Mm. Um, how do you view failures? Well, they're almost inevitable, I guess. You know, I, I'm, I'm long in the tooth enough to know that not everything you do is going to succeed. And, and I accept that sometimes things I do will fail. That's part of, the, part of life. Yeah. At which point did you, you know, know to cut your losses? The oh, first one you, must be the hardest. Yes, uh, yes, but you always know when to cut the losses. <laughs> it's usually shouting you in the face, you know. Yeah, it's usually pretty obvious. Because you know, like with um, um, the whole entrepreneur and startup culture, it's always twig, 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 yeah. twig until you win, right? Yeah. And you know. What's then, you know, is it to cut or to tweak? I think sometimes it's a question of how much energy you're willing to invest in something. Because tweaking something doesn't mean it'll succeed. Um, sometimes it does. You've got to recognize um, those moments, I guess. And, and they're, not always, they're not always teachable moments because I think the circumstances change a lot. And what might work in one situation might not work in another. So, you know, um, to tweak or not to tweak, I think sometimes it's just a judgment call. You know, there's no formula for it. But some things, you know, you, you know, whether it's sometimes you know the location is just not good. So, would tweaking it help? Maybe not. So, I think you just have to realize sometimes that, you know, something is not going to work, I guess, and shut it down. But by then, you usually know. <laughs> you know. Um, unlisted. Mm. Uh, in 2011, um, why did Unlisted happen? Was it a HQ for marketing and HR? Because all these are all individually run business, right? Uh, what was the thought then? Well, by then, we had been running for a number of years. We had quite a lot of different concepts overseas as well as in Singapore. Um, and although we always tried to cross-market to some extent, we weren't particularly good at it because we didn't have a vehicle for it, you know. And so on this, the collection came about because of that. We were just looking to have an umbrella for a range of brands that re really didn't have a lot in common with each other otherwise. Um, yeah, and so unless it came about because of that, it was just more um, a necessity, and we did it for that reason. And this worked out quite well for us because, you know, from there we understood a little bit more about what our different brands were and how they needed to operate um, parallel to each other rather than, because they're all distinct concepts and we have kept them as distinct concepts. But, you know, at the same time, how do you make the obvious connections? So will you say it's mainly for marketing purposes? Yes. yes. It, was, it is mainly for marketing purposes, even to this day. How do you cross market? How do you find obvious ways of working with each other? Hmm. Um, why? Okay, this is funny. Because I, you have a whole list of places where you chair. Okay. <laughs> and I was just like, how do you find? Because uh, yeah. I have a friend, uh, Bjorn Ching, mm. uh, runs Articho, mm. who also teaches and you know, do events. And uh, you know, Bjorn, yeah. great guy. Yep. And what, what you do even more, chairs at even more places than <laughs> uh, Obviously, like, why? And then let's go on to the, you know, what do you need to do in each? Sometimes it's uh, interest. Sometimes it's feeling about giving back to uh, the industry. So, for example, I, I chair Shartek. And that's very much a um, feeling of obligation to give back to the industry. Um, and it's, it's such an important role, you know, to bring new people into the industry. Um, and I feel that, you know, 
if I'm asked to do it, I should step up and and try and give my my best where I can. So, um, and I guess it was one of those roles that was, in a way, thrust upon me. I was asked whether I'd be, oh. you know, <laughs> and I said, okay, I'll, I'll give it, I'll do my best. Um, and it's a rewarding role. You have a lot of fun doing it, you know, because you see the pupils coming through. Um, you try and make sure that you're well connected with industry and that you are churning out students who are relevant to the industry. Um, and it gives you a great insight to what industry is doing and the kind of talent throughput that's coming out. Um, you know, and, and as for the other things that I, I work on, you know, some of them are charitable ones, like you know, National Volunteer and Philanthropy Council. Mm. Again, those things are about giving back to society and, and seeing if there are things you do in your professional life, uh, in your personal life that can contribute to wider society and, and you know, it's something my parents taught me, I guess, you know, how you can, you should always try and uh, look after those less fortunate than you, if in your capacity you are able to do so. Um, so as much as I can, um, I try and do that. It's not always easy. Um, I think partly because of competing interests and time and all these kind of things. But if, if someone asks you to and you can do it, you should definitely do it. So that's always been my philosophy. And that's all things like NHB stuff, you know, whether it's the museums and all that. It's stuff I've always really enjoyed. So for me, I get a lot of personal reward out of it. Um, I've always been very much into heritage and conservation and things like that. So Do you ask, get to choose like what to, to keep and what to put on? No, not really, but we work with the museum curators and things yeah. like that. It's always a, a huge collaboration. I mean, the thing about museums is they are, they are large organizations. They've got enormous budgets. They are, you know tied to many sort of um, um, national agendas and things like that. So in a sense, it's, it's, a, it's a large, um, like a large cruise liner, you know. You direct things in a certain way, things like that, but it's always with, with a mind to, you know, your capabilities within the museum, what the mission of the museum is, things like that. It's not a large ego trip where you're trying to figure out, uh, you know, wow, what do I want to show, you know, those things almost never happens. So, I mean, like, hearing from what you say, it's kind of like going in, knowing what they do, understanding that, yep. and then delivering it. Yeah, you have to be there to serve the institution, not yourself, you know, and the role of, of all the museums is slightly different, whether you're a national museum, or you're the Asian Civilizations Museum, or you're the National Gallery, all of them have a different raison d'etre, and you have to figure out um, how best you can serve the interests of the institution. And with Shatek per se, um, what were, I mean, like, what were your few decision points? What were things that are pushing with the school? Well, it's always about making sure that you're producing the, the, the best um, talent for the industry that you can and making your courses relevant and making sure that your institution itself remains relevant to the industry. Because at the end of the day, that's what the, the a school like Shatek is there for. It's there to produce uh, talent a pipeline of talent for the industry. So you've got to keep reminding yourself that that's what you're there for. <laughs> you know? And with that in mind, how then the time, you know, that's the crux of it, right? You have to juggle. Um, but you know, time management is just one of those things. You've got to find enough hours in a day and make sure that you are is doing the things that really engage you. And if you do things that really engage you and that matter to you, the time isn't such a huge commitment. You learn to live with, you know, rushing to certain things or having to have less time to yourself. So, but if you're doing something that's a chore, then, then that becomes a big issue. You've, you know, even if you have to spend a little time on it, it's a big problem. But the things that engage you, the things you find interesting, the things that you find valuable, you usually find the time for it, within reason, you know. <laughs> and with that said, what activities engages you and inspire you lately? I would say a lot of it is still to do with work, you know, for what really gets me uh, going in the morning is finding that project to do, you know, that old building that you want to restore and the new hotel you want to create. And, and it, it's not, these projects don't come around every day, you know, at the moment I don't have one, for example. Um, but you yearn for the day when you find that special project you want to take on again, you know, and each time I've done it, whether it's the Old Clare Town Hall Hotel, Waterhouse, it's always been just an amazing experience while it lasts. 
and then it gets finished and you have to move on to the next one. Yeah. Um, so this question, another one from your ex-employee, how many bubble chairs have you collected? <laughs> I think I have more than a dozen. No, I have easily more than a dozen. <laughs> I stopped counting, in fact, but I have a lot. I Are they all around? I have, no. yeah, but all our properties have one. <laughs> Why bubble chairs? I don't know, you know, it's a nostalgia thing for me again. I remember as, as a child, my dad used to bring us to, uh, bring me specifically, uh, to get haircuts on the weekends. And there were always these um, old cast iron barber chairs, you know. I remember them from my childhood. And for a while, they started disappearing. All the barbers were switching to modern chairs. And I realized that all these uh, amazing barber chairs, big cast iron things were for sale at really not expensive prices. So I started buying them, you know. And, and, and I realized that they were just such great pieces of furniture. A lot of people connected that they saw this old barber chair and it brought back memories of their childhood. I, I still remember sitting on those. And in fact, I remember they used to have a little wooden block went from when I was very small. They put the wooden block on the chair and you sit in the wooden block to get the haircut. Um, and th that's one of my earliest memories. Do you, did you actually do any research on bubble chairs? Like, what was it? Why, why, why did bubble chairs look the way they are? Like, are they from the US or? <laughs> actually, the ones you get in Singapore are mostly Japanese. Oh. Yeah, the Takara ones, you know. Um, and I guess it was, um, yeah, I mean, you look, if you look at what an old, those old barber chairs, they're, they're made heavy. of big cast iron things. They're heavy. They'll last. They'll, they'll be around long after I'm gone, you know. So they were designed completely over-engineered. And it's part yeah. of why I love them. You know, they're totally, totally over-engineered. Um, <laughs> and they were made to cut hair. It's amazing, right? Nobody would waste this much engineering on a barber chair nowadays. Yeah, I wonder you look at them, they're much more simple now. I wonder why the you know, emphasis on such design engineering yeah, on I barber think, chair. I think if you went to a male barber in those days, it was much more than just a haircut. It was grooming. You know, they shaved for you. They did all these wet shaves and things like that. People spend a lot more time sitting in those barber chairs than they do now. Now, unless you're going to a professional sort of men's grooming salon, nobody kind of does <laughs> your, you know, tr wet shave and things like that anymore. So it's much more transactional nowadays. You, uh -huh. know, you go to a barber and cuts your hair and it's like 30 bucks or whatever it is. Because like, the barber chair with the most design engineering thing on the, in the whole barber shop. Yes, by far. <laughs> by far, you right? Know? And they were amazing. If you look at the, the barber chairs, still now if you buy one, you know, it's almost always in perfect condition. Or you can make it again into perfect condition with a few screws of a screwdriver, you know. Um, so they were, they were just made to really last. Oh, Those things will, will be around long after I'm gone. And as it is, they're already 70, 80 years old when I buy them. You know? oh. <laughs> so I love collecting them for that reason. <laughs> no, I, I love looking at them too and, and was just wondering what was the top process of this designer and the era this chair was born in. Yeah, why they made them that. But all the early barber chairs were like that. Yeah. yeah. If you the... look at the Kokens and all that, they were all really over-engineered. Yeah, that was the question. If I were to find an answer, I'll, I'll come to you. Mm. Um, so last question before I jump into a round of quick question. What motivates you to continue to run the business? Oh, you know, at this point, the motivations are simple for me. It's just really about um, continuing the businesses that I've built because they are, they are so much a fabric of my life now, you know. Um, I can't imagine doing anything else. It's really just wanting to continue doing this because it's so much fun. And it's just, it's just been such a part, large part of my identity and my life. When you say continuing by, is it by building more? Both. Building more and running the ones that I've already built. <laughs> you know, because you can't just build them and then ignore them, I guess. <laughs> yeah. and, and in some ways, the bigger challenge is to continue the businesses of the ones that you have already run open rather than opening new ones. Yeah. Okay, so round of quick questions. Uh, what have you bought recently under $100? that have impacted you the most? I think, for me, um, father and son t-shirt. Because um, it's kind of fun to kind of have the same t-shirt as your five-year-old son. Um, what does he say? Uh, 
Well, actually, it's the one from National Gallery. It doesn't say anything, but it's got a big block print. Um, and it, it's more of a modern art kind of impressionist okay. thing. And it's kind of cute, I guess. It's a little bit cheesy, but I like having the same T-shirt as my son sometimes. Uh, when the occasion calls for it, it can be quite cute. Yeah. Uh, any books or documentary that you like to recommend? Well, I haven't read a book in a long time, as, I, as I've uh, readily admitted. I feel bad about it. I used to be a... a you know, really... Uh, uh, from your past, any books? Um, from past? Well, I've, I've had favourite authors, like, oh. you know, like Nadine Gordimer and all these. Um, but I... How do you I spell? Huh? How do you spell? N-A-D-I-N-E, um, G-O-R-D-I. She's a South African. Uh, oh, fiction? She's mostly fiction. Oh. Um, so, you know, Ian McEwan and all these, I have a lot of favourite authors, I guess, but... But to be honest, I haven't read a book in a long time, and that's partly inertia. Once you stop reading for a while, you know, picking up a book again and getting the, to the first chapter, um, sometimes it's a little bit hard and you get lazy, and there's always something that you want to do, mm. and you forget to, or you just kind of lose track of, of trying to... So I continue to buy books, but I, I haven't read one for a long time. <laughs> but I'll go to the airport, you know, go to the bookshop and pick up a book saying, oh, that this sounds amazing, I've got to read it. And then it sits on a shelf, I'm ashamed to say. Um, and I haven't, pick, I haven't picked them up often for a long time, <laughs> you know. Uh, any advice for your, now you're 44, so maybe 18-year-old and 20-year-old self, and place us where you are at. Wow, 18. I would just have been finishing uh, school in, in Ireland and coming back to Singapore to do national service. I would have been nervous as hell. Um, because I hadn't lived in Singapore for a long time. A little unsure about myself, I guess, because, you know, I, 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 at that point in time, you don't know how you're going to adapt coming back to Singapore and, and, and whether you'll enjoy it. So I'd like to assure myself, I guess, reassure myself that actually it's not so bad. You really will enjoy it. And, you know, things sound uh, dramatically different wherever I, you are in the world, you know. I think, I think Singapore isn't really that different from Ireland after all despite it being the other side of the world and people having different accents and things like that, you know. Human beings are all, ultimately, we're all the same. Um, yeah, so maybe a little assurance of myself. And what was the other age? 28. 28. Wow, 28 would have been peak of my legal career when I was, <laughs> well, not peak of my legal career, but, but you know, when I was starting out um, as a young lawyer. Yeah, I guess for me at that time, it was, a, it, was a, it was a strange situation because I would say I was doing quite well in the career, but at the same time, not finding it very fulfilling. Um, simply because the work itself wasn't enjoyable at that time. A lot of it was bankruptcy stuff, you know, and bankruptcy is a very miserable uh, area of the law because you are really kind of, you know, you get a front row seat of, into the misery that... You, that um, business failures can cause. So I wasn't really enjoying it. But I, I, I would say to myself at 28, you know, that yeah, maybe there's a different thing to, to life than just work and law practice because at that point in time, you do, you're not enjoying your career. It, it can seem very demoralizing, right? What do you do? It's the only thing you train for and you spent years training to be a lawyer. And so the opportunity cost at that time seems very high if you're going to switch. But actually, it wasn't very high at all. It was opportunity cost was very low so maybe that would be what you would yeah tell. just a bit of perspective you know what you think of <laughs> how were you convinced that little 28 self that i think it's just perspective at that time it seems like a big thing to switch from law to something else when you spent the best part of five six years training to be that person you know um it's not a big deal i guess and you it's know? achievable but, yeah it's achievable plus all the things that you've learned is not wasted because that's what you hear all the time Right, people say, oh, you've wasted your degree, you've wasted all the years you've spent studying. None of it is wasted. It just adds to the, you know, that column of life experience. When you think of the word successful, who came into your mind and why? Wow, who came into my mind? Um, I don't know, you know. I, I think someone like Mother Teresa was successful um, simply because she made it her life mission to help others. And she became known for it. It wasn't a conventional career success or being rich or something, you know. Um, and, and for me, 
some element of success is always tied up with, with financial success, I guess, in business. But I think I would like to think at the end of the day, you know, when I'm on my deathbed, that I'll think more about the other things I did in life that, that gave me as much um, fulfillment, I guess, whether it's family life, you know, which is something I'm, I'm really enjoying at the moment, much more than, than work in a way. Um, so I'd like to think of myself if, if succeeding in, when I'm in, on my deathbed at 85 or whatever it is, you know, that I've kind of left behind a, a happy family and, you know, a successful in the career sense, my children. Um, but more importantly, that they're happy, I guess. Uh, are there any routines uh, or habits that you find important? Um, no, not really. I'm not much of a routine person. Um, I like to just go home after work and hang out with the family. If that's anything like a routine, I guess that's something I enjoy. Morning routines? Morning routines, I don't really have any. Um, you know, I'm quite happy to yeah, roll with the punches. I don't really have any particular routine. I'm not much um, of a person who seeks routine either. Generally, I'm quite happy to do different things. Yeah. What are some of the most common misconceptions about you mm -hmm. or your work? Mm -hmm. um, I think people are always a little bit surprised when they first meet me because they expect me to be um, much more trendy or fashion forward or something, you know. <laughs> I always <laughs> find a tinge of uh, disappointment when they first meet me. Like, wow, okay, you're quite an ordinary person. Yeah, and, and, and that's, that's uh, yeah, maybe that's something that people always uh, are surprised by, um, you know, because I, I'm perceived to be some uh, style maven or something, lots of fashionable restaurants and hotels that somehow I, I must personally myself be a, a particularly stylish person, which I'm not, you know. Um, so people are always a little bit surprised when they first meet me. Yeah. Uh, if you have a time machine, uh, when and where would you travel to and what would you do there? Oh, I think I would travel back it, to, to... It could be the future too, huh? either way. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I would travel back in time though. I think I would go back to, to the 80s and, and see what I was doing. I think I, that would be quite nice. Um, as I said, you know, I enjoyed, I very much enjoyed my time in school. I would like to revisit that kind of, kind of I, I, I would, you know, and maybe appreciate it more. Because it, you never quite appreciate things until they're over, really, you know. Yeah, I mean, if you don't mind me probing yeah. a bit further on the school part, like, because mm. I, I never heard about the overseas uh, boarding mm -hmm. school experience. How was it like there? It was yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, well, but, but, I, I think I, I really was miserable when I first went. My first year there, I missed home a lot. After that, I had a lot of fun just with. What were the fun friends. things you would like? I think it was, was more just the friendships you make, you know, you, you, the friendships that last for life. You know, all the friends I made then, I'm still friends with. You go to each other's weddings. Now it's children's christenings and things. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just an amazing part of my life that I would never have got the opportunity without having gone overseas at a young age, I guess. Um, and at the time, I, I think I didn't appreciate it as much. But over the years, you, you look back and those were great times, I guess. Um, and not, I know not everyone enjoys um, the experience in boarding school. I happen to enjoy it a lot. So perhaps for me... Um, Do you guys get to go out? No, in, in the week. No, not at all. No, no, no. So no. What, what, on the weekend, you, get, you had an exit once a week if if you had a guardian outside, um, and I did have a guardian, but she didn't bring me out that much. <laughs> oh, so, so mostly we were confined to to um, the school. So what were the fun? There was no there was no computer. No, there was, there was no, no internet. No, not so in what Ireland. Were the fun, not what in Ireland the fun? in nineteen eighties. No, <laughs> nineteen eighty five in Was Ireland. There were no hang out in the forest or yeah, we would picking berries. Do, yeah, maybe? we we would yeah, we would literally go uh, picking berries in that you know, in in autumn you pick all the blueberries and your hands would be all stained black. Yeah, oh. and your whole cheeks would be all black from <laughs> eating the blackberries and the blueberries, things like that. Yeah, and we would play in the fields. We tried to catch the sheep and things like that. Oh. I was in a very rural school. Oh, so we were surrounded by sheep and sheep and cows and stuff. So it was it was a fairly bucolic sort of experience, I would I would guess. Um, you know, um, yeah, it was fun. I think we did all sorts of naughty things still. You know, <laughs> um, trying to go back of sheds to smoke and things. 
was perceived okay. to be a very grown-up thing to do. Um, <laughs> you know. Yeah, do it all yeah. when you're young. Um, last, are there any says or do you like to tell the audience things you'd like them to do? Say or do? I don't know, mm. you know. People always ask me to say something along those lines and I always struggle. I don't know whether I would have done something if someone had announced it to me, oh, you should do this, you know. I think a lot of times in life you've got to find your own mojo, your own kind of thing that gets you going. Uh, you know, advice from someone like me is probably not that helpful because my life experiences and, and, and the things that get me going are quite different from what someone else might, might uh, you know, find. So I don't know. For, for me, it's, it's really as trite as it sounds, really about finding your, the thing that gets your energy and your juices going in the morning. Um, it's not always easy to find it. I didn't really find it till my 30s. Um, and some people never quite find it, right? They don't enjoy the jobs when they hit their 50s, and that's pretty miserable. <laughs> they say it's a uh, but I've been lucky, I think. You know, I recognize that. I've been extraordinarily lucky. They say it's a two-part equation, you know. First part is finding out, and that's the yeah. toughest part. And the next part is doing it and becoming yeah, yeah. good at what you do. And, and, you know, I never discount the fact that, you know, luck plays a big part in, in what happens to you in life and things like that. As much as people say you, you make your own luck and things like that. Uh, honestly, the chips have to fall at the right time, in the right places, in the right sequence. And sometimes they just fall better for other people than for others, you know. It's not necessarily... So because someone is more skillful or they are somehow better at doing something, often the difference between success and failure is, is, is luck, you know, being there at the right time, the, you know, meeting the right person, could be anything. Um, where can people find you or, you know, interwebs or your projects? Mm, I don't know. I guess... Uh, <laughs> Unlistedcollection.com. <laughs> yeah, they have an Instagram, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Facebook. Instagram and Facebook. Yeah, I'm on Instagram somewhere. Yeah. Okay, we're done. Cool. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. <laughs> What's up, people? It's over. As usual, all show notes, links, books can be found on our website, brianvictor.com. In the upcoming weeks, we have Agent Tan, the author of the Teenage Textbook and the Teenage Workbook. If you'd like to be notified for these episodes or really cool articles coming up, go to the website and sign up for the mailing list. Uh, thank you again for giving me your time and listening to this episode. Uh, have a fantastic week ahead.